Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello, ahoy, welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan, this is the show where we search out some of the real secrets, some of those unknown beasts, those hidden mysteries lurking all around the universe. This week we're talking about a small but mighty predator in the ocean. Also checking up on how a a telescope is getting on. It's going to be launching in a month or so. It's hit some problems. We'll find out more. Uh, And I've got your questions this week. They're on sleep, on cats, and on getting scared. First, let's catch up with one of our favourite geniuses on the show who tells us all about other geniuses. This is Sydney McSprocket. Sir Sydney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello. Sir Sydney McSprocket here. Now, modesty aside, I consider myself a rather good inventor. But Britain has produced some truly great minds. Inventors, designers and engineers all creating amazing new things and solving all sorts of problems. Oh, it's enough to make you quite proud. (laughs) Now, where was I? Oh yes, I'd like to introduce you to a few of these great British minds, if I may. And I would like to start with some of the inventors behind something I know you wouldn't like to do without. Computers and the World Wide Web. In fact, I myself invented a computer of the stupendous stipendary compendium. <laughs> you try saying that with a tea cake in your mouth. Crumbs everywhere. You might think computers are a relatively recent invention. But let me take you back to England 1822 and a fine gentleman called Charles Babbage. Babbage is recognised for coming up with the very first computational machine. A way of creating mathematical tables without having to use a pen and paper. Well, this was a great solution because it meant mistakes were fewer. If we all got the same answer when we worked things out for ourselves by hand, no one would ever have failed a maths test. He was helped by another mathematician, a lady called Ada Lovelace, or to give her her full name, Augusta Ada King, Countess of Lovelace, a very grand name for a very great mind. She wrote the first algorithm for Babbage's machine, and so she's said to be the very first computer programmer. Now, of course, today, computers are in everything from TVs to toasters. And computing really accelerated in popularity with the dawn of the internet. Can you imagine a world without the internet? Oh, it's a terrifying thought, I'll agree. 
Oh, especially for you youngsters with your consoles and mobile phones. So, who do we have to thank? Well, the internet would be nothing without the World Wide Web. The trillions of web pages we can all access with a click of a button and easily click between wherever our imaginations take us. So, let's go back to the 1980s to meet our next great British mind, the father of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee. Berners-Lee worked at a busy research lab in Switzerland around 40 years ago. There were so many people working there with so many projects and computers were constantly having to update their information one by one. Oh, this took a lot of time. Berners-Lee, however, came up with a solution. His breakthrough was to develop something called hypertext, which meant documents on different computers could communicate. He went on to join his hypertext system with Internet Protocol. This was a way for people to move seamlessly between links in documents held in different computers. He even created the first internet browser. And one of the things that makes Tim Berners-Lee truly great is that he declined to patent his invention or to require royalties, believing the World Wide Web should be freely available. Oh, wasn't that nice? And here's an interesting thing. Babbage and Berners-Lee had something in common. They were interested in solving problems. If you're interested in solving problems, maybe you could be a great mind too. Oh, oh dear, it looks like my Alsatian vibration station's malfunctioned. I'll have to go for now. But do come back soon, won't you? Toodaloo for now. Sir Sidney McSprockett's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash McSprocket. It's question time on the show. This is where you leave your science questions as a review for me over on Apple Podcast. Find the Fun Kid Science Weekly there. Uh, let us know what you think. Five stars. Leave me your name so I can see it. There's a little comment box at the bottom and that's where you leave your question. First off the grid this week is from Lexi, who's 12, who wants to know, what happens when we fall asleep? Well, sleep is quite a strange thing, Lexi, and it's something that I don't think any expert or scientist will know everything about. Uh, It goes against what all humans really should do. I mean, think back when we were cave people, when we were always fighting for our lives, and we'd suddenly switch off for hours You'd be leaving yourself open to attacks from big predators and beasts. It seems quite a strange thing to do. But we need to sleep to rest our brain. It gets rid of the junk in our brains that we've seen during the day that we don't need anymore. It helps us understand what's happened. It helps us rest and grow our body. A sleep cycle usually goes through two hours. You go into a deep sleep, that's when the rest really happens. And then you you only dream at the very end in a stage of sleep called REM, which stands for rapid eye movement. Now, in that, your body is actually paralysed, so you don't go off and act out your dreams. It'd be quite dangerous. So when people sleepwalk, it means normally they're not actually dreaming. Uh, If you are going to have a nap, 
try and plan it around 90 minutes, two hours, that long a sleep cycle, so you don't wake up too exhausted. If you wake up too early, if you only nap for like an hour, you'll be right in the middle of deep sleep and you will wake up more tired than you were when you went to bed. Uh, thank you for the question, Lexi. Something we'll never really know the answer to. Here's one from Jesse, who's eight, who wants to know, do cats forget things? Now, for small things, for short-term stuff, for their working memory, they do forget a lot. They've got a pretty bad memory. If you show them where, like, a toy is or a little jingling mouse that you've got, after, like, a minute, they'll probably forget where you've put it. But for long-term stuff, like, for whether they love or hate something, uh, they do remember that. Grudges stick around for cats. And lastly, it's from Kane, who wants to know, why do we get scared? Now, we get scared because of a few things. When we see something dangerous to us, something that could really harm us, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala. It turns on, it fires off loads of hormones around your body that make you on edge. They pump you full of adrenaline. They get you ready for fight or for flight, to battle or to run away. So we get scared because of that, because of our nature, but also because of of what we've learned to be frightened of. Like, if you get bit by a snake when you're really, really young and it hurt, maybe it did some, like, real damage to your arm, you'll probably be scared of that for a while. You've learned to be scared of that. You've learned to be wary of things that might uh, be a a risk to you. Thank you very much for the question, Kane. If there's something you want answered on the show next week, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Today, we're talking about one of the most dangerous-sounding beasts in the world. It's called, it's called the Assassin Bug. Now, Anne Wignall is from Massey University in New Zealand. On the other side of the world, she's very kind enough to join us. Anne, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well. Um, a little bit terrified, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> I, I don't know too much about the Assassin Bug. Uh, is that its official name or is that just kind of what scientists in the industry, in the business, call it? It's its its, its common name. Um and yes, it's what we usually call them. Yeah. So why have you been interested in assassin bugs in the past? Why are you doing, why have you researched these? Well, the name alone kind of drew me towards them. But then I found out that assassin bugs um, hunt spiders. So so tell us all about the assassin bug then. Uh, just what have you found out about this spider hunting beast? Well, assassin bugs um, hunt spiders by stalking them across the spider web. Um, And so they use a couple of techniques to do this. They will stalk very quietly and carefully across the web towards the the spider, making absolute sure that they don't alert the spider that they're there. So they step very carefully um, and they'll have all sorts of tricks to make sure that the spider doesn't, doesn't detect them. And the other trick they have is by using a technique that we call aggressive mimicry, which is where they pluck the silk using their legs to create vibrations. And those vibrations in the web sound like prey struggling in the web. So the spider thinks that there's food in the web and comes running over thinking that it's going to get a meal. And instead, the assassin bug attacks and kills it and eats the spider instead. um, How much do we know about how smart this animal is i mean it sounds like quite a genius thing to do to 
to pluck the web to kind of lure them in is it like a genius in other ways or is it specifically when it wants to get a spider it turns into einstein well we think it's a genius um it's an amazing trick that it's doing because usually spiders hunt insects but here we have an insect that's completely turned the tables on the spiders and is hunting them instead we don't know a lot about them um apart from how they hunt the spiders. Um, But they certainly seem to have quite a few tricks up their sleeves in terms of how they hunt them. Uh, What does this creature look like? It looks a little bit like a praying mantis, if you can imagine a a praying mantis that you often see in your your gardens. But it's much more delicate. So its legs are really thin and look like they can break at any minute. And they have these very long antennae at the front. And instead of these chewing mouth parts like what praying mantis have, they have this long, sharp, stabbing, beak-like rostrum that um, they use to stab the spider, inject it with venom to kill it, and also some um, juices, kind of like our saliva, that break down the body of the spider in the inside and then they suck it up through this mouth part like a straw um, to, to drink the juices of the spider. Uh, I know that you're in New Zealand now, but you have done work in in Australia as well. Uh, Australia, famously the home of everything that's deadly. Where would I (laughs) where would I find the assassin bug? Could it creep its way up to my neck of the woods here in the UK? I think you probably do have assassin bugs there. So assassin bug is actually a really large group. So it belongs to a family of insects called the Redubidae. And, and they're everywhere, pretty much. Um, the assassin bugs that we're talking about now are a very special group within the reduvids that um, are called the thread-legged assassin bugs. So they have these very skinny legs. And, yes, they tend to be found worldwide as well. So it's highly likely that you have some over there in the UK as well. <laughs> they're, not, they're not deadly to us humans, are they? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Only if you have eight legs. <laughs> well, well, that's handy. And I know that you've, you've told us kind of how they go about their business, how they capture their prey, but you've done research on these creatures, haven't you, Anne? Just, can you tell us about what you did to try and track how they lure and stalk prey? Well, we've been studying these assassin bugs for, for a few years now. And one of the um, things that we found that was just completely weird to us. It just seemed completely um, ridiculous was that they spend all this time stalking the spiders, trying to make sure that they don't warn the spider that they're there in the, the spider web. So they're sneakily walking across the web towards them and then they tap them with their antennae. And that to us was kind of like sneaking up on a sleeping lion only to tap it on the shoulder and say, hey, we're here. And it just seemed ridiculous to us. So we were really interested in why the assassin bugs did this tapping behavior. Why in the world would they take the risk of the spider turning around and attacking and killing the assassin bug instead? And so we did a a few experiments. And what we found out was that by tapping the spider, it actually calms it down and makes it much less aggressive, makes it much less likely that it's going to attack the assassin bug as it's moving into position to attack. It sounds a bit cruel, doesn't it? It sounds like something a a very, very mean killer would do in a a horror film. How, 
Like, how many of these characteristics do you see in the wild with... I know it's doing it, I guess, to be to calm the spider down, like you say, but how many times do we see other creatures be mean and evil just for the sake of being evil and mean with no real point to it? Well, I'm not sure that it's really being mean. I mean, the poor assassin bugs have to eat as well, but we think it's actually quite common. So what we've found um, just anecdotally is that there seem to be quite a few predators that will try to calm or stroke or tap their their food before they they actually attack it wow so um it's not so you've you and you've looked into this assassin bug what other creatures what other insects what else are you looking at at the moment trying to figure out things about the wild well, we're trying to figure out just how widespread it is. So we know that there are animals called digger wasps that will hunt crickets and they will tap the crickets before they attack it. Um, there are other insects, other assassin bugs and other spiders as well that will stroke and tap their their prey before they, they attack it. And so we're trying to get a measure of what it is that makes this behaviour so widespread and able to um to basically work across such a wide range of animals and so we're studying a huge range of spiders at the moment so we're we're tapping them and we're giving them stuff that they should attack like food and seeing if they respond to it as aggressively as if they hadn't been tapped so we're trying to find out um, how many species will be calmed down if they get tapped and also, how many taps does it take before they are calmed down? So if they're just tapped once on the body, is that enough to calm them down? Just like one little pat on the shoulder? Or do they need 10 or 20 pats before they, 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 they just calm down? You can try and reassure us all you like that it's a nice thing that they're doing it to calm them down and I just simply will not believe it. They're doing it because <laughs> they're mean, mean spider. Listen, Anne and Anne Wignall, thank you so much for joining us. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Now, this week's Dangerous Dan is all about a small but mighty predator in the ocean. The spiny dogfish goes by many names, like the spiny dogfish, like the pike dogfish, like the rock salmon, like the spiky dog. Uh, It's a shark, though. It's one of the most common sharks in the sea. Now, they're called dogfish because they're seen to chase down small fish in packs uh, like dogs. They're grey, brown on top as well. They've got a white belly with little spots that run down the side. Uh, They've got very sharp teeth and a really strong jaw. It's a shark. What would you expect? Now, it's on this list, though, because it's got a really unique way of defending itself. Something which no other sharks really have. It's venomous. Poisonous. It's toxic. It's got these deadly spines uh, in front of its fins either side. And it uses these to, to jab to poke, to spike, to punch. It does this to passing prey, disabling them 
uh, maybe to run away or to get out uh, to, so it can feast, so it can have lunch. Now, uh, luckily, they're not harmful to humans, really. Only if you don't know what you're doing and, and you don't hold them the right way, then they can do you damage. But pretty much they're harmless to you and me. And they also, they love a long trip to hunt for hot water. Uh, one spiny dogfish once was spotted traveling 5,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean from America to Japan. It's a very impressive beast and it goes on our Dangerous Dan list. Catching up with one of our favourite science superheroes now, this is Karina and K-Mystery. K-Mystery. Chemistry and climate. Campaigners are urging the government to invest in restoring peat bogs in an effort to reduce rising CO2 levels in the environment. I don't get it. How's a mucky old bog going to help climate change? Oh, hey, K-Mystery. So... You're a soil superhero now. Well, you do know there's chemistry in soil, don't you? In fact, there's chemistry in pretty much everything. Come on, I'll show you. Right, let's get back to basics. It's your Soil 101. To start, what is soil? That's easy. It's the muddy stuff you find in the garden, in fields, up hills. Well, yes... But there's more to soil than that. Soil is the thin layer of material that covers the Earth's land surface. It's made from rocks deep underground. It takes many, many years for rocks to weather into soil. In fact, it can take 2,000 years to make just 10 centimetres of fertile soil. Wow, but what causes a rock to weather? Well, weathering could be the result of water slowly running over a rock or the wind blowing across it. Or it could be from chemical or mineral changes or because of living things, things like tiny microorganisms or insects and worms and even the decaying matter from larger animals. Oh, and here's a top tip. Worms can be the sign of healthy soil. They aerate the soil and also eat organic material. So, a big worm population means the soil is rich in nutrients. Soil comes in all shapes and sizes and flavours. You know, forests, peatlands, wetlands and salt marshes. And flavours? Well, because different rocks are made of different chemicals... These could affect the quality of the soils. Loam soils are great for farming. They're rich in sand, silt and clay, which helps keep the moisture in. Sandy soils are great at draining water, but they don't have as many nutrients. But whatever their background, all soils are important. Because we have to feed everyone? Well, that's certainly part of it. But I still don't get what soils have to do with climate change. Are you kidding? Soils are the largest store of carbon on Earth. In 2017, scientists recorded that whilst the EU had 4.5 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions, here's the amazing thing, there were 75 billion tonnes of CO2 stored in Europe's soil. So that's why it's important to look after the soil, or else 
All that CO2 will go back into the atmosphere. I don't get it. How can it go back? It's not going anywhere, is it? Sounds crazy, but yes. You see, cutting down forests, building over fields, even digging or tilling the fields to remove weeds can all reduce or erode the available soil. And by eroding, we mean that the soil becomes thinner and rain and wind can find it easier to wash and blow it away. But how else are farmers going to get rid of weeds without digging? We aren't meant to use harmful chemicals, are we? Oh, you're right. We have to be careful about what chemicals we add to the ecosystems. And chemists are working on safer herbicides, which might solve the problem of weeds without losing soil. It's a kind of balancing act. And plants do their bit too, thanks to the soil they grow in. So as well as soil being a store of carbon, plants grab CO2 out of the air as part of their natural processes. Oh, photosynthesis, right? That's right! You see, plants are an important carbon sink. That's something that takes more carbon from the atmosphere than releases it. Plants can store carbon in their roots, and farmers have found that by growing cover crops between their primary crops, they can maximise the amount of carbon absorbed. And it's all thanks to squidgy, soggy soil. (laughs) And you can see why healthy soil is really valuable. If you can't grow any crops in your soil, or there's no soil at all, then the carbon ends up in the air. And that leads to climate change. And there are other amazing ways that soil can help tackle the challenges of climate change. It can help prevent floods from spreading, and water held in the soil can help against droughts. And we're back. Oh, thanks for the insight, (laughs) chemistry. No problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. And online, you'll find a cool experiment where you can see how many worms there are in one square foot of Dad's vegetable patch. (laughs) Bye for now! K-Mystery, Chemistry and Climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com slash chemistry. It's time for this week's Science in the News. The launch of the James Webb Telescope has been put back to allow for more checks. It's getting sent up on the 22nd of December. Been delayed by a few days because of an incident. We don't know anything more. It's the new Hubble Telescope and it will travel into space uh, to take pictures of deep space, of the very far edges of the universe. Also, a satellite the size of a shoebox might change the way that we look at space. Uh, It's small but mighty. It's called the CubeSat. It's tiny. Experts want to throw it into the atmosphere to track endangered animals here on Earth, to try and spot deforestation and to clear up space junk too. Uh, And finally, Australia has said a La Nina event is happening for the second time in two years. This is a weather phenomenon where strong blit winds blow warm seawater off the surface in a way. Cold water replaces it and that affects quite a lot. It means... You get colder and wetter land nearby, and it's thought to be happening in Australia and contributing towards climate change. 
And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've got a science question you want answered on the show, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. Five stars in your name will really help me see it. While you're there, there's loads of science stuff that you can hear from us. We've got loads of brilliant podcasts, really. They're on the Apple Podcasts. They're on Google, Spotify. You can get them on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. Uh, and Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Hear us all around the country on that DAB digital radio uh, and over at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!